Hello everyone and welcome to Classic Gaming Today, where we take a look at the gaming experiences of the past through the eyes of the present. I am your host Tony, and today we're going to look at Snatcher, a visual novel graphical adventure game developed and published by Konami and released on the PC-8801 and MSX2 computer systems in Japan in 1988, with several ports following, including the PC Engine Super CD-ROM system in 1992 and the Sega CD in 1994, which incidentally was the only North American localized release of the game and is the version I played for this podcast. We will be talking about that game in just a couple minutes, but first, as is customary, just a little bit of housekeeping. This is episode number 30. I remain excited to be here. I hope all of you are as well. If you'd like to reach out, let me know how I'm doing or give suggestions, comments, advice, feedback about either this episode, prior episodes, suggestions on future episodes, or just to talk classic gaming and technology, I would love to hear from you. And there are a couple of ways you can reach out. You can either send me an email. My email address is classicgamingtoday at gmail.com, or you could shoot me a note on Twitter with the handle at classicgamingt. So I'm definitely interested in hearing what you all think. Feel free to reach out if you feel so inclined. For anyone who may be new, welcome. I just want to take a brief moment to go over the anatomy of an episode, because for the most part, we follow the same kind of format and structure for every single episode that we do. We always start by talking about the history of the game in question, the historical context, why was the game made, how was the game made, and then we go into a pseudo-review kind of section. And I say pseudo-review because it's not like we assign a quantitative value to a game or rank it, so to speak, but we do talk about every game from several different perspectives. We always look at the graphics. How does the game look? The sound and music. How does the game sound? The narrative and or story, if the game has one, play ability and controls, and the overall feel. What does the game feel like to play today versus when it was released 20, 30 plus years ago? And we do all of that to determine how well the game holds up today. And in order to determine that, we assign each game to one of several categories. At the very top of our list is the Pantheon of Classic Gaming. If a game reaches the Pantheon, you know it is that darn good. It is a certifiable classic. You should play it today. It has aged very little, if at all. It is as good to play today as it was when it was released, and I highly recommend you give it a go. Just beyond the Pantheon are our Golden Oldies. These are the games that are not quite Pantheon level. They're still awesome experiences. I still highly recommend that you try them out, especially if you have nostalgia for the game itself or you enjoy the genre. You're almost guaranteed to have a good time. They don't quite hit that Pantheon level, but they are still amazing experiences. Beyond our Golden Oldies, we get to the Mediocre Mentions. These are the games where we start getting into the realm of, I can't really recommend them to the general population. You may still have a good time if you particularly enjoy the genre, but for most people, these games have aged just a little bit too poorly, or they may have had a couple of issues to begin with that make them a little bit less enjoyable than what you would otherwise want. And then beyond the mediocre mentions, we reach the footnotes. These are the games that are best left in the annals of history. I have played them, so you don't have to. I cannot recommend anyone play these games. They have either aged incredibly poorly, or they may not have been all that great to begin with. With that out of the way, we're going to start talking about the game of the day. That is Snatcher.
Snatcher is a visual novel graphical adventure game released back in 1988 in Japan for the PC-8801 and MSX2 computer platforms with ports to several other systems occurring in the years that followed. Now, before we can talk about Snatcher, we need to talk about the game's creator, someone who would eventually become an incredibly significant influential figure in gaming. That man is Hideo Kojima. While many of you likely recognize Kojima as the person responsible for the Metal Gear series, the failed PT-Silent Hills collaboration with Guillermo del Toro, and most recently Death Stranding and its forthcoming sequel, back in 1986, Kojima was merely the newest member of Konami's MSX home computer division. And Kojima's path to the video game industry is a bit of an interesting story itself. As a child, Kojima had been exposed to a number of television shows and movies, partially as a result of a family tradition whereby every single night he and his family would watch a different movie in its entirety. Any and all films were fair game, and Kojima and his parents experienced a variety of genres during their family movie nights. In fact, I actually read that Kojima and the family were not even allowed to go to bed until they finished their movie of the night. So this was a serious thing amongst the Kojima family. And these early experiences would greatly influence Kojima and instill in him a love of cinema. That interest would further be solidified after one of his classmates brought a Super 8 camcorder to school. It was around that time when Kojima decided that he wanted to begin making films himself. So, that's exactly what he did. Now, mind you, this is a pre-teenage Kojima, and I don't believe any available footage exists from these early efforts. But, even in his childhood years... Kojima was enamored with the prospect of creating movies, and he'd even charge other children 50 yen to see his amateur productions. While this overall interest would come to define Kojima's work throughout his career, he went to college for a much more traditional education, majoring in economics. Though, even with his educational focus elsewhere, he still continued to develop his creative side, often creating fictional short stories whenever he had the time, and sometimes even weaving those stories into his coursework. I don't know how the heck you would weave a creative story into economics, but I guess Kojima could. His hope was that if he could write an award-winning story, then he might be approached by a major film studio to direct an actual movie. To the best of my knowledge, though, this never happened. But what Kojima did eventually decide to do was pivot into the video game industry, joining Konami's MSX Computer Home Division after his graduation in 1986. So let's talk about the MSX computer system and the general state of Japanese computers and consoles in general in the early to mid-80s. Now, computers around this time. There were no real standards. A lot of people recall when IBM computers or IBM compatible PCs became a thing. The reason that was such a big deal is because before that, most computer systems, most computer platforms were entirely proprietary. If you wanted a piece of software for your particular computer platform, almost guaranteed that particular software would only run on that computer platform. If you got a game for a IBM PC Jr., it's probably not running on an Apple Macintosh or vice versa. And there, all, there were all other sorts of computer platforms out there beyond the, 
the North American versions that at least I have the most familiarity with. And in Japan, it was no different. There were a bunch of different computer platforms, a bunch of different standards that were at play that made it so that software between systems were not really compatible. There was proprietary hardware, software, and operating systems. There weren't really any unifying elements that would create a system or a common system, a standard system that would allow interoperability between different systems for a single piece of software. The MSX was a collaboration between Microsoft and the ASCII Corporation, which was originally a Japanese-based magazine publisher who quickly moved into the computer field, primarily as a Japanese licensee and distributor of Microsoft's products in Japan. Microsoft was attempting to get a foothold in the Japanese market, and one of the ways they were trying to do that is via these collaborations with different Japanese companies. One of those collaborations was with the ASCII Corporation. Now, the MSX itself was an attempt at creating a unified computer platform with wide compatibility across Japanese computer ecosystem, similar to what IBM would do in the United States with their push for IBM-compatible PCs. The thought here was that if a piece of hardware or software was listed as having MSX compatibility, then it would be usable on any MSX-compatible system, regardless of who manufactured it. So moving away from the generally proprietary nature of many computer systems at the time, and trying to move towards a more common standard that everybody could align around. Now, this was a pretty progressive marketing push, and it would prove to be popular with consumers as the MSX platform became hugely successful in Japan with over 7 million units sold after its launch in 1983. Interestingly, even though the MSX was a Microsoft computer platform, it didn't really see a whole heck of a lot of release outside of Japan. You would expect, especially nowadays with Microsoft's focus, well, worldwide, but they're still an American or United States company. You would have expected to see a Microsoft product release here in North America or here in the United States, and the MSX was really primarily a Japanese thing, which I thought was interesting given Microsoft's involvement. The MSX, beyond being popular in the Japanese market, would also prove to be popular with game developers, who quickly turned their attention to developing new and varied game experiences for the computer platform. And just to recall, this is before Nintendo rose to prominence in the Japanese gaming market. So for a good period of time after its launch, the MSX was the platform for game development in Japan. And coincidentally, that would be the platform that Hideo Kojima got his start in the gaming industry several years later. By 1986, Nintendo had captured the imaginations of game developers and consumers, so Kojima was actually a little bit disappointed that his first experience in developing games was focused on the MSX platform. He believed the MSX was inferior to Nintendo's newly released 8-bit system, the Famicom, at least that's as it was known in Japan, as the MSX could only display 16 colors at a time. Regardless of his internal feelings, Kojima remained focused on his job, with his first assignment being a role as the assistant designer for a game called Penguin Adventure, a behind-the-character-perspective action-adventure platformer that was well ahead of its time, offering a pseudo-3D experience where you'd have to traverse numerous and varied environments, dodge obstacles, and defeat enemies en route to your eventual goal. Retrieving a golden apple to cure the princess of the Penguin Kingdom with the ending of the game changing depending on your actions across your playthrough. Now, this game was actually a very interesting 
experience. You would basically be behind your character and it would be a pseudo 3D kind of thing where you would be face on into these different environments as you would be navigating and dodging obstacles and um, doing a little bit of light platforming elements. This was well ahead of its time considering this was the mid 80s that this was being created and the MSX was not the most powerful platform out there. So just something to consider. This was definitely well ahead of its time from an overall technology perspective. Following the release of Penguin Adventure and the recognition that Kojima was a talented designer, he was asked to take over the creation of a new game from a more senior designer at Konami. A fast-paced military combat action title that was being developed for the MSX2 computer system, which was the successor to the original MSX. That military action experience is what formed the original foundations of what would become the very first Metal Gear game. When Kojima took over the project, though, he noticed some issues, the most significant of which was the fact that the MSX2 computer system just wasn't powerful enough to maintain the degree of speed and combat intensity that the game was intended to convey. Things like the number of enemies and projectiles on screen at one time had to be reduced in order to maintain the playability of the game, and common console features like smooth scrolling that you would see in many Nintendo games just weren't fully possible with the MSX2. Kojima believed that these limitations were detracting from the overall experience, so he decided to switch things up, de-emphasizing the fast-paced combat action and instead focusing on a more stealth-based gameplay loop where your goal was to secretly infiltrate an enemy base while avoiding detection by guards. So rather than having that fast-paced, in-your-face military action he took the approach of creating more of a stealth-based experience. And the rest, as they say, is history, as Metal Gear would become one of the first titles to emphasize stealth-based gameplay and, in the process, would effectively spawn an entire gaming genre, along with a critically acclaimed game series that would feature numerous releases over the years. With Metal Gear being an undeniable success, Kojima was free to work in his next title for Konami. Drawing upon his love of movies, including semi-recent science fiction releases like Blade Runner and The Terminator, Kojima decided to create a cinematic cyberpunk adventure that would allow players to experience a Hollywood-esque story with strong characters, intriguing plot twists, and fully developed locations across a futuristic science fiction game world. That concept would eventually evolve into Kojima's second title, which was known as Snatcher. As Kojima sat down to begin working on the title, his overarching goal was to treat the game's production as though it were a film or anime, with a significant amount of time spent on creating a cinematic experience. To do that, Kojima stood up a small team of talented individuals to design and develop the game, the thought being that a smaller working group would be able to respond to changes in a more agile fashion than a larger team. Working closely with designer Tomoharu Kinoshita, artwork for the game's characters was created, with Kojima wanting to utilize a style similar to the popular Akira manga. Other game elements took a significant amount of inspiration from other popular properties of the time. So significant, in fact, that it's a little bit of a miracle there wasn't some form of copyright infringement claim brought forth against the theme. To be more specific, the Snatcher robot skeleton, which was featured prominently in the game, that design is almost a direct copy of the robotic skeleton from the Terminator films. Additionally, one of the core premises of the game, that cybernetic robots who look like humans are living amongst us, was the primary plot device of Ridley Scott's Blade Runner film. 
And the other core premise of the game, that these cybernetic robots living amongst us are actually clones of taken or snatched humans who have been killed and replaced by robotic imposters, is very similar in concept to the classic sci-fi horror film Invasion of the Body Snatchers. And even Kojima himself has reflected on the fact that the game owes a lot to its inspirations, specifically calling out Blade Runner as a direct influence on the creation of the game. That's not to diminish the work that he and his team performed on the game. It's not meant to detract from that, their experience or their efforts at all. But in some instances, these inspirations can sometimes veer a bit closer to directly copying than what you would expect to see. Regardless of what inspired the game, Kojima took great efforts to craft a mature-oriented story that would take players on an emotional journey, originally writing five acts for the title, which would eventually be cut down to two as a result of storage space constraints related to the floppy disk medium the game would be created for. Even only creating the content for two of the originally planned five acts, the game took 18 months to develop, which was an absurd amount of time to develop a title in the late 80s. Back then, it wasn't uncommon for a full game to be delivered in around six to nine months, if not quicker for some of the less quality kinds of titles. Snatcher's development would take two to three times longer than a traditional game, owing largely to both the cinematic design of the title as well as the depth of the story and detailed flavor text and lore in the game world. Eventually, Snatcher would be ready for release, and in November of 1988, the game would launch on the PC-8801 computer platform, which was another popular Japanese computer of the time, as well as the MSX2 computer platform around a month later. Snatcher would receive a positive response across both the player and critics community, with many praising the game's story and graphics, with the biggest complaint being the fact that the game ended on a gigantic cliffhanger, which was pretty much unheard of for a game to do. This was, of course, caused by the fact that Kojima's original five-act story had to be cut down to only two acts, but I do wonder if there would have been a way to perhaps condense the story just a little bit to give players a more satisfying ending versus a cliffhanger with no guarantee of any sort of resolve. At the time, there were plans to release a sequel to Snatcher that would effectively include acts three through five, as well as one final conclusion act that Kojima had conceptualized. Unfortunately, that never came to be, as Konami didn't want to have another prolonged development cycle on their hands, especially given the fact that even though Snatcher was well-liked amongst players, it didn't really end up selling all that well. Luckily, after the game's original release, work would begin on a separate game set in the Snatcher universe, known as SD Snatcher, with the SD standing for Super Deformed, referring to the fact that the graphics in the new title would utilize a chibi style for the character and artwork, meaning characters would often be drawn as shorter, chubbier versions of themselves with an enlarged head and other caricature-like elements. This style remains a fairly popular style in Japanese anime and manga, even to this day. Now, unlike the original Snatcher, SD Snatcher would be a role-playing game and would also introduce a third act to the story in order to provide players with more of a resolution to the narrative than the originally released cliffhanger ending. This third act would be included in later home console ports for the title, with the PC Engine Super CD-ROM being the first console that would receive a port for the title. And this ended up being Konami's first time working with CD-ROM technology, though they did have a general understanding of what it meant to be a CD-ROM game of the time, 
Basically, what it meant was bigger graphics, better audio, and more bells and whistles. And those features are exactly what Konami brought to the table with the newly ported title. As now with storage readily available, the team could redesign the graphics to include more colors and better special effects, once again inspired by Hollywood films of the time. Character models were updated, as were animations, with newly created character expressions and loose lip-syncing now a part of the overall experience. Background music was similarly improved to be much higher quality, and even voice actors were brought in to record certain lines of dialogue for the title. The bottom line? This was pretty much the definitive version of Snatcher. At least if you spoke Japanese, because up to this point, there had been no attempt to localize or officially translate the game for any other audiences outside of Japan. Despite that fact, the PC Engine version of the title would release in late 1992 and would sell well for that system, with gamers and critics alike recognizing the improvements that CD technology brought to the experience. Now let's fast forward a couple years. Konami was beginning to consider what games to work on for the somewhat newly released Sega CD system. They originally thought about creating a full motion video or FMV title, which you guys all know I would have loved, but instead they decided to go back to Snatcher once more, this time taking on the task of localizing the game for individuals who couldn't speak or read Japanese. This would ultimately be the version of Snatcher that I played for this episode. Localizing the title for North America took approximately three months and included the recording of tons of dialogue throughout the game, as well as changing some story elements and cultural references around to resonate more strongly with English-speaking cultures. Along with that localization came a little bit of censorship as well, as Sega was keenly aware of the newly introduced game rating systems and recognized that Snatcher would easily be rated a mature title given both its adult story themes as well as the gore and somewhat erotic situations that were prevalent in the original game. As a result of that sensitivity, all nudity was removed from the game. One of the game's characters had her age increased to 18, and some of the gorier scenes in the game were made slightly more tame. Now, even with those changes, Snatcher still received a mature rating in the United States upon its release in 1995. Unfortunately, though, despite the effort required to localize the title and port it to the Sega CD, this version sold very poorly, with only a couple thousand copies actually listed as selling at retail stores. To put that into perspective, many of the games that we talk about in this podcast sell in the millions of copies, and Snatcher for Sega CD literally only sold a couple thousand. It was not a hit at all. That lack of sales, however, would not diminish the game's legacy, as Snatcher would attain a cult following years after its release, with many individuals praising the game as one of the best adventure and cyberpunk titles of all time, owing largely to the cinematic nature of the game, coupled with the maturity of the game's themes. Despite that cult following, however, there still remains little word on whether we'll ever get a sequel or any sort of remaster. While Kojima did comment in 2011 that he would love a return to the world of Snatcher, he's no longer associated with Konami, so any potential future release would almost certainly be without Kojima's involvement. And even then, it remains a bit uncertain whether anyone would take the time and effort to release a new Snatcher game today, given the fact that the original was never exactly a big seller. That said, 
there is definitely a legacy here. For Snatcher itself, even though its sales were subpar, it still introduced a number of innovations that future games and developers would try to emulate. For Hideo Kojima, this would represent his first truly cinematic adventure, an experience that got him one step closer to his childhood dream of directing a major motion picture. He would subsequently continue to apply and refine his cinematic style throughout his career, so much so that nowadays Kojima is close friends with several well-known Hollywood directors and is often spoken of as a true creative genius in the gaming world. The underlying themes and style that Kojima depicted in just his second game ever would lay the foundation for nearly all of his future work. While Snatcher may never get a true sequel or continuation of its still-truncated three-act story, the fact remains that as a standalone title, it's a game that still warrants discussion. Not only because it's an early example of Hideo Kojima's unique perspective on game design, but also because it serves as one of the first truly cinematic adventures that both the Japanese computer market, as well as the broader home console CD market, would be exposed to. It may not have sold all that well, but those sales figures should in no way diminish its significance in gaming history. There's a reason Snatcher has a cult following to this day. It's a truly intriguing experience and is a title that any gamer who has even a passing interest in cyberpunk sci-fi worlds would be well advised to check out for themselves. now going to transition to talk about what it felt like to play Snatcher today versus when it was released over 30 years ago. So just to recap, Snatcher is a visual novel graphical adventure title that Konami created. Hideo Kojima was ultimately the director and creator, released originally on Japanese computer platforms and then ported elsewhere over the years that would follow. So let's talk about what a visual novel adventure game is. We've talked a little bit in the past about traditional point and click adventure games, and those games typically have one of a couple different styles. You have your first person a point-and-click adventure game where you don't see your character, but you interact directly with an environment, clicking on different objects or puzzles and things like that, and navigating the environment via a first-person perspective. And then you also have a third-person perspective or a third-person point-and-click adventure game where you actually see your character on the screen, you click around, you can navigate, you can move them around and interact with objects and puzzles and people and ask questions and all of that good stuff. The visual novel is a little bit different, and the reason that a game is called a visual novel, or the reason that the genre of visual novel is called what it is, is because it's basically a visual novel, which means most of what you're doing, most of your interactions with the game world are via a menu-driven interface that effectively gives you a graphical version of an actual written text. So in this context, with Snatcher, the way the game worked was you would have a viewport into the game world where you can see different scenes, you can see different characters, you would be able to look at different objects, but you really didn't have any degree of true navigation. You would see these scenes, and then you would select from a menu different options for what to do within those scenes. So you might see a scene where you're in an office. 
let's say. And as you go into the office, you have a bunch of different menu options that will allow you to do different things like look at objects or investigate objects or talk to somebody if somebody is there. You would navigate this menu system, you would pick that option, and then text would appear on the screen indicating what exactly you did. And if for whatever reason one of your actions would have triggered a change in the scene or a necessary change to the graphics, the graphics themselves would update. So in that way, you were playing effectively a text adventure, albeit with visual elements. That's why the game is called a visual novel. So that's just generally speaking what a visual novel is like to play. We'll talk more specifically about the aspects of Snatcher and how it implemented a visual novel in just a couple minutes. Before we do that, though, I do just want to mention once again that I played the Sega CD version of the title. And the reason I did that is because, number one, it was the only version available in North America. And number two, because it was the only version that was available in English, at least the only official version available in an English translation. I do believe that the original Snatcher was translated or at least had a couple of unofficial fan translations that were available, but I would have much preferred and I did prefer playing the officially translated version. For what it's worth, I don't believe that Kojima himself was involved in the creation of the Sega CD version. I believe that was just something that Konami had worked on to port to North America, and by this point, Kojima had moved on to other projects and hadn't really been working so much on Snatcher anymore. So his involvement with this port was limited, if not nothing at all. But I did want to make sure that I played an official version, and because I cannot read or speak Japanese, I was kind of limited to using or to playing on the Sega CD. So just a little bit up front, just to let everybody know which version I played. I do also recognize, by the way, that Snatcher was released on the TurboGrafx Mini. Uh, that recently came out the last within the last couple years. I don't remember the specific date, but it did come out within the last couple years. And I believe Snatcher was included there as well. But once again, that was the Japanese version, so it wouldn't have really helped me out all that much. So let's talk more specifically about Snatcher and let's just go over a brief overview of the game. Like I had mentioned before, when you navigate or when you play Snatcher, you are playing a purely menu driven game. For the most part, there is one deviation with combat that we'll talk about. But for the most part, everything you do within the game is driven by menu options. And there are a bunch of different actions that you can take in any given scene or in any given situation. So you have actions like move, which will allow you to navigate within the scene. And by that, I mean, you could basically navigate from room to room if you're in a house or you might be able to move from one street to another street or move and enter a building if you're outside the building. So that effectively becomes your navigation. The move action is how you would navigate around the world. You also have a look option. So that enables you to look at various objects. And it's not like you can pick which object based on the visuals that you're seeing. When you hit the look menu, it will give you a list of potential objects that you can look at. You would basically just cycle through all of those objects and do a look on them, and then the game would tell you something about them, either via narration or depending on what the situation is, you might get some flavor text from an individual that might be in the scene or from your sidekick companion, depending on what the situation might be. Now, beyond look, you also have investigate, which some people might say, well, that sounds an awful lot like look, and you would be right. But investigate, from my perspective, 
is kind of just a little bit deeper than what look is. So look is kind of giving you that cursory information. It's this is a this is a CD disc, just as a hypothetical example. When you investigate, it might actually say written on the disc is the phrase something, 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 whatever that phrase might be. So there is a distinction between look and investigate, though I will say, and we'll talk about this in a little bit, there are some sequences in the game where you have to kind of bounce back and forth between look and investigate just to make sure that you get all of the available text and information about different objects, which can be a little bit cumbersome. We'll talk about that in a couple minutes. But generally speaking, when you're going through these environments, you want to look and investigate anything that is available to be looked at or investigated, at least until text starts to repeat. So you want to make sure that you are exhausting all of your potential look and investigative options, because a lot of times you'll find something that you may not have found if you stopped short. And you might be wondering why you can't progress in the game. That's because you didn't exhaust all of those available options. Beyond look and investigate, you also have the option to talk to individuals. So you can talk to op to different people that are in the scenes. You can ask them questions. And once again, the list of potential questions is auto-generated for you. It's not like you have to enter text or anything like that. So very similar to a traditional adventure game. As you learn more things, the game will populate a question list that will allow you to ask different questions to the characters that are in the game world. You also have an inventory system, and in this game, they're called possessions, which kind of makes sense. They are things that you possess, and within that possessions menu, you have the ability to look at your various inventory items, investigate those items. You can use them on different objects in the environment, or you can show them to other people. So as you can see, the menu is fairly complex, and there is a pretty good amount of nesting that happens here. So just as an example... If you wanted to show somebody your badge, just as a, as a purely hypothetical example, to do that, you would have to go into the possessions menu, go into the show menu, and then select your badge, and then show that person your badge. That's only a couple of clicks, but when you're doing that throughout the entire course of the game, and the game itself is probably, uh, I can't remember exactly, but maybe eight to ten hours or so in length. It's a little bit of a little bit of cumbersome navigation. I think they could have done that a little bit better. There were other options around that time that didn't have that same kind of interface. So regardless of that fact, the menu system, that was your main mechanism for interacting with the game world. Now, within the game, you do have an ever-present sidekick, and that sidekick's name is Metal Gear, and it's a robot companion. So it's interesting that he that Kojima took Metal Gear and embedded that character into this game, albeit in a very different role than what would be uh, common in the Metal Gear series. That sidekick, your sidekick character, would be able to analyze evidence, store photos, and do various other things that you would expect a robotic companion to do. So basically, Metal Gear was used in the game to perform an analysis-like function and would also be used to interject some informational elements during dialogue options or even sometimes some comedic elements while you were having dialogue. Most of the dialogue in the game was purely text-driven, though there were some sections where there was some voice acting in there as well. But Metal Gear was basically the way that you would go a little bit further down the rabbit hole as you were investigating different scenes. So let's say you picked up an object and you wanted to you wanted to take a look at it or analyze it further. You wanted to try to find 
fingerprints, let's just use as an example. Well, you wouldn't be able to do that yourself. You would assign that task to Metal Gear. You would navigate his menu system or her menu system. I'm not sure if it's a he or her. But regardless, you would navigate Metal Gear's menu system, and then you would be able to analyze that evidence, and Metal Gear would give you some information back on that, and then that might generate additional menu options in your in your main menu or in Metal Gear's menu itself. Beyond interacting with the inventory using Metal Gear, Metal Gear also had access to a video phone with various numbers that you would be able to call, most of which were related to various story elements in the game. But there were some Easter egg kinds of numbers that were discoverable in the game world, which I absolutely loved. Just a couple of examples there, and there might be others that I didn't find, but there is an embedded number within the game world for Konami, which you can actually call, and it, it kind of calls the Konami corporate hotline, which I thought was really funny that they added that in there. There was also another number that was advertised on a billboard in one of the game scenes for the love line. And if you call that, and depending on how you respond to the various questions that the that the individual on the other line or the other end of the line asks you, you can get into some comedic situations there. And eventually the line stops working because I guess you go a little bit too far. But I just thought it was awesome that there were some Easter eggs hidden in there for people who were just paying a little bit more attention to the overall game world. None of those were required for completion of the game. But as I saw different in different sections or different scenes, if I saw something that looked like a phone number, you better believe I was going to try to throw that in the video phone and see what would happen because I just find that kind of stuff interesting, what developers will add as almost kind of flavor around the main experience. So I enjoyed doing that. If anybody had any other phone numbers that I didn't find in the game world that weren't related to the actual game, let me know because I'm definitely interested in learning if there were other kinds of Easter eggs built in there. So, the way the game would work is you would navigate to different scenes using this menu-driven uh, sequence or menu-driven system. You would be able to talk to characters. You'd be able to explore different locations. There were a good amount of locations in the game. Uh, it ran the gamut from traditional office buildings to rundown hotels to holiday city streets. This is a Christmas game, by the way, if anybody wasn't aware. Uh, so this is uh, kind of interesting that uh, it's almost a Christmas game like Die Hard is a Christmas movie. So Christmas is kind of in the background, but it gave me that kind of Die Hard feel a little bit because it just had that that vibe from a Christmas story kind of perspective. Anyway, that's a mild tangent. There is, as you play the game, you will notice that there is a degree of open-ended gameplay, meaning you can visit various locations whenever you want. There is a pretty big open world as far as where you can navigate. It's not like you're actually walking from place to place, but as far as navigating the in-game world, you can pretty much go to any location whenever you want, assuming you've discovered that location. Though at the same time, general game progression requires specific key actions to be taken. And a lot of times if you go to these areas, even though you can go to the different spots in the game world whenever you want, it's not like there's a whole heck of a lot to do there. So while it's a sort of open-ended, open-world kind of experience, in reality, it plays much more like a more linear kind of graphical adventure game. Now, I did mention that most of the game is menu-driven, but there is one aspect of the game that is not, and that is the combat. Yes, this visual novel has combat in the game. There are different sequences where you're going to have to fight Snatchers as you progress through the story. 
And the way that combat works is very simple in this game. You are presented with a three by three grid of the screen, and you have to aim and shoot at whatever the targets are, or whatever the enemies are, wherever they are on the screen before you take damage. And you do have a life bar, so you can take some damage and you can mess up a little bit. And the combat does get harder the farther along the game goes, but it never really gets to be all that challenging. Some of the combat sections are just a very quick, you shoot one time kind of thing, and you defeat whatever the person is or whoever the person is that you're fighting. There are other sections where you're almost encountering like a wave-based set of targets that you have to defeat all of those waves in order to progress in the game. You can die in those combat sections, but other than the combat pieces, I don't think there's any other way to die in the game. There might be, but I'm not aware of any. And I will say that I did die a couple times in the at the very late combat sections of the game where it does get a little bit challenging to be able to target at the right time and, and the enemies move pretty darn quickly. I believe that this game also supported the uh, Sega light gun that was available. So you could potentially use that light gun on the game if you were doing these shooting sections. I did not have access to that. So I simply used a controller and pointed to one of the nine grids or the nine boxes on the screen that was laid out in that three by three grid. But I do remember, or at least I think I remember reading that the light gun, the Sega light gun was usable in this particular game. Like we talked about before, the overall game is split up into three acts, and each of those acts build upon each other. And the original release of the game, not the Sega CD version, but the original release had two acts, and those acts were meaty, really full experiences, but they ended on a cliffhanger. The Sega CD version is based on the Super CD version for the uh, PC Engine, and what that means is that a third act is included. The unfortunate thing about that is that the last act is pretty much just an hour-long cutscene. There is very little interactivity other than a couple of combat sequences, and we'll talk more about that in just a little bit. So, before we get into talking more specifically about the various aspects of the game, I do want to take a look at what the back of the box says, because as you all know, I love looking at the back of the box. I love figuring out or determining and seeing how different marketing companies or how different development companies had marketed their titles, especially because around this time, you wouldn't necessarily have the internet to go out to to look at gameplay videos to determine if a game looked good. You may not even have magazine articles to determine if a game reviewed well or if a game looked good from that perspective. And in the case of Snatcher, so few copies were sold that I would venture a guess and say not many people looked at the box at all. But we are going to look at the box today. So for Snatcher, the back of the box says AD 2047, Neo Kobe City, Japan, a place of madness and decadence. A mysterious bioroid life form has appeared. Its true nature and purpose are unknown. Is it some country's secret weapon or an alien from another world? They slay their victims and take their place, earning them the nickname Snatchers. A new police division, Junkers, has been formed. They are trained specifically to combat the Snatchers. The fate of mankind hangs in the balance. The war between the Snatchers and Junkers has begun. Enter the cyberpunk world of Snatchers as Jillian Seed, a new Junker recruit. 
Use your military special forces training, the latest high-tech weapons, and your android sidekick Metal Gear to hunt down and destroy the Snatchers. This role-playing game brings you a thrilling mystery with beautiful women, cold landscape, and deadly adversaries. Think carefully and watch your back. And then, of course, there are a few screenshots on the back of the box as well to show you what the game overall looks like. So that is how Snatcher was marketed. That was the back of the box for Snatcher on the Sega CD. And I got to say, it sounds pretty cool. I think I probably would have picked it up had I had I thought about it or seen it in a store. I did have a Sega CD when I was around this time, around around this age. But I don't know. I just I never picked up Snatcher from a physical copy at that point. So I don't know what what my problem was, but I guess I wasn't really feeling it at the time. It definitely sounds like a pretty good experience just based on reading the box. So we'll now move into talking more specifically about the various aspects of the game, and we're going to start by talking about the graphics. The graphics in Snatcher looked really good. The character designs evoked a Japanese anime kind of style, which, like we were discussing, was one of Kojima's goals with the overall game, and I'd gotta say, he succeeded with that goal. The colors were vibrant, the environments were well-detailed, Items in the game world and your inventory were well-designed and easily recognizable. The animations cutscenes were pretty simple. The animations were not terribly complex. They were designed in the same style as the rest of the game, meaning there was no full-motion video or or really high-quality animated cutscenes. But I will say, the visuals, generally speaking, really worked in the game. Any given scene as I was playing Snatcher... I could see taking a screenshot of and having it feel right at home in a graphic novel. The stylized graphics, they definitely use more stylized graphics versus realistic graphics, worked really well, and because they were stylized, they still held up really well even today. Moving on to the sound and music, I really enjoyed most of the music in the game. I thought it fit well with the scenes, with the appropriate amount of tension or action or pensiveness included in each of the individual musical themes as appropriate. I will say, though, one of my favorites was the jazzy rendition of Jingle Bells that plays when you explore an outdoor market-like area with tons of advertisements, display windows, and other kinds of Christmas-like elements in the game. And like I was saying, this is that's why I said this is kind of like a Christmas movie, so to speak. It's a Christmas game, even though it's not really focused on Christmas, but it does take place during Christmas time. The music for most of the game was pretty much universally good. Everything felt like it fit with the environments and with the scenes that were happening on the screen. I even liked the little stingers that would play when you find a clue or if a major plot twist occurred. It was just a really well-done musical score. The sound effects in the game were good as well. Though I will say the one area of the sound that I have a little bit of a critique against is the voice acting. Now I have to say... I recognize that back when Snatcher was created, professional quality voice acting did not mean the same thing as it does today. And I'll also say that the voice acting for the time was actually pretty good. But if I look at it from today's perspective, the voice acting for Snatcher was definitely lower quality than I was hoping for. So much so that it did somewhat distract me from the story that the dialogue was attempting to convey. Now, the good news is that only certain critical pieces of the game have voice acting, with the rest of the game being presented solely as text, which, from my perspective, was actually a good thing. 
I don't want you to get the wrong impression. It's not that the voice acting was bad. This is not like Resident Evil 1 PS1 style bad voice acting. It's just that the voice acting in the game, for me, didn't really have any nuance. As an example, if you have a bad guy talking, his voice is very much a stereotypical bad guy. If you have a pretty woman speaking, it is beyond a doubt a very stereotypical pretty woman voice. Each character sounded like someone was putting on a voice to fit the stereotype versus representing a character that just happened to have certain traits. So this was probably my least favorite aspect of the game. I'd rather have simply read everything and had a purely text-based experience, just like the Japanese computer original versions, than have the voice acting included in the game the way it was. I know it was a big deal to, to release on CD and to include voice acting, in it and everybody was doing it at the time and like i said most were doing it really poorly snatcher was not a poorly done voice acted experience but it just wasn't it didn't do it for me personally it's not the worst thing in the world but it was definitely a distraction moving on to the narrative and story this is where for me the game really shines so let's talk about the story a little bit snatcher is set in the future and it follows a major catastrophe that happened 50 years ago where a virus was unleashed and wiped out nearly half of the world's population. You and your wife were luckily uh, in some sort of cryogenic sleep for some reason. You do find out why, but I'm not going to spoil it here. So you're in a cryogenic sleep, and as a result, you avoided the effects of the catastrophe. But being in a cryogenic sleep for such a long period of time has had an adverse effect on your memories, as both you and your wife cannot remember anything from the past. With your marriage hanging on by a thread, you join the Junker Agency, which is a government-authorized group that's responsible for finding and eliminating snatchers, robotic cyborgs who kidnap and kill high-ranking members of society, replacing them with robotic clones. You cannot easily tell who's a Snatcher and who's a human, which has caused significant civil unease as the Snatcher menace becomes more and more severe. Throughout the game, you'll learn more about the origins of the Snatchers en route to ultimately understanding what needs to be done to deal with the menace once and for all. Now, along the way, there are a bunch of twists and turns, and I truly enjoyed the overall narrative. It was much more complex than many of the stories you'd experience on home consoles of the time, and was much more akin to a computer point-and-click adventure game kind of story, which I really appreciated. I admit, though, the plot was mostly derivative of popular movies of the time, most prominently Blade Runner with the concept of replicants, but I still thought it was a solid cyberpunk narrative. That being said, I do have a couple critiques. At certain points in the game, the dialogue and explanation text goes way overboard in explaining what you just saw or what major plot twist just happened. It's like the game's designers didn't trust the player enough to truly understand what just happened, so they had to directly explain it. In a game that strived to create a cinematic experience and mostly succeeded, this was one of those unnecessary things that was a bit of a distraction. Just as a purely hypothetical example, let's say you were just in a room and and somebody was just found out, you just determined that somebody that was in that room was a snatcher. Rather than just let the scene play out and have the visual of the person actually being a snatcher and, and recognizing that you recognize that that person is a snatcher, the game will say something like, 
oh my, you're a snatcher. And then the snatcher will be like, yes, I am. And that particular scene didn't actually play out in the game. But it's that kind of thing where it was just over the top explaining what's going on. I mean, people are generally speaking pretty intelligent. You you don't have to, and in this game, you don't really have to read between the lines to understand what's going on. So the fact that the developers and the designers decided to just kind of beat you over over the head with what was happening, I don't know. It just kind of, it rubbed me the wrong way just a little bit. One of my other critiques of the story was about the final act, act three. That was just a mega story dump that was, from my perspective, just a bit too much in such a condensed period of time. Now, I recognize that the original title ended on a cliffhanger with only the first two acts of the game being present in the original experience. The CD-based versions of the game, though, added a third act to help tie all of those loose ends together, and the third act definitely did that. But it seemed pretty clear that there was much more content intended than what we eventually got, because the last act was pretty much just a one-hour cutscene with what might be perhaps the longest bad guy monologue I have ever witnessed, whether in computer, video games, or in movies. The bad guy monologue in Snatcher felt like it went on for like 15-20 minutes. It was it was extreme. Now Once again, I know the goal was to be like the movies, and I recognize that in many movies, the final plot comes together as a result of some sort of ill-informed bad guy monologue, but even with that context, this was a little bit excessive. And my final bit of critique related to the story. Your character, Gillian Seed, was written as a complete womanizer who tried to date literally any woman he came into contact with, despite very obviously being married, albeit in an estranged relationship for whatever that's worth. Even though his marriage was on the rocks, he tries throughout the game to reconcile with his wife, all the while trying to date both the 18-year-old daughter of one of his associates and the receptionist at Junker headquarters, as well as calling the love line and doing all sorts of stuff over there. Now, Admittedly, there is a certain degree of comedy in these situations, but still, it just felt a little strangely written to me. And I'm not trying to suggest that it was it was done in poor taste. It just felt weird because one of your motivations is to try to get back together with your wife. And as you're going through the game, there are tons of options and tons of scenes where you're almost forced into a situation where your text or your dialogue is going to be trying to get with these other women. And it just felt disconnected to me. It didn't feel like one followed from the other. So a few critiques with the narrative and story. Otherwise, though, I really did believe that the narrative was pretty darn compelling. Moving on to the playability and controls, the overall gameplay loop here consisted of two different core mechanics. The majority of your time is spent in the visual novel interface, while at several points during the gameplay, you transition to an, into a stationary first-person shooter section of the game with those nine grids like we were talking about. So as far as the visual novel interface, when you're working through that menu-driven interface, you use your controller to select actions or menu options, and you click the C button on the controller to select them. And we talked pretty extensively about the different menu options. So I'm not going to go into too much detail here about those specific actions because we already talked about them. But I do want to mention that I do have a critique of this of this menu system. The distinction between look and investigate feels pretty darn arbitrary. And a lot of times for certain scenes, 
the game expects you to look at an object, then investigate it, and then look at it once more before you can pick up or retrieve the key clue that's needed to progress the game. And this effectively means that every interaction in the game world will eventually end in you exhaustively clicking every potential action against every potential object until the game starts to repeat itself. By itself, that's kind of the way I'd play a game like this anyway, since I usually want to devour all of the content so that I can fully understand the lore and the story behind the game. But some of the required sequential actions needed to progress the story felt entirely unnecessary. This was definitely an area that, if the game was made today, would likely have been refined. Now, despite being primarily menu-driven, there are some interesting elements at play here that go beyond the traditional menu-driven visual novel interface. For one, you did have access in Junker headquarters to a computer named Jordan, and that computer has a ton of details about different topics. You can enter specific keywords or names via an on-screen keyboard, which will return results that you can review. And the interesting thing here is that that computer interface or the ability to search that computer is not limited to only critical path kinds of items. It's not like it's only only for topics that you need in order to complete the game. You could put in somewhat random kinds of things and still get a response, which I thought was kind of cool that the developers decided to add some additional flavor there. So I did enjoy that. There were also a couple of scenes where you had the ability to answer or respond to free form questions. So occasionally in dialogues, you may be asked a question that you need to answer via a freeform text entry. I thought that was an interesting switch from the traditional menu-driven selections, though I will say that it can be cumbersome in execution. And this is primarily used as a sort of prove-you-are-who-you-say-you-are kind of thing. Whenever this mechanic is used, you're asked some random question that you can find the answer to via a Jordan search. The one issue with that is that Jordan, the computer, is only accessible from Junker headquarters, which means if you don't happen to know the answer, you need to leave the conversation, navigate back to Junker headquarters, access Jordan to retrieve the necessary information, and then return to the conversation location and begin the discussion again. That in and of itself wouldn't be a significant issue. But there are some conversations that have multiple questions in them, and if you happen to miss the key info when doing your first Jordan search, you may need to go back and forth several times in order to complete a conversation. That kind of thing derails any sense of momentum that you may have gained in the game, and it really does feel like a bit of unnecessary filler. I could understand using the mechanic a couple of times so as to stress the importance of the Jordan system, but the way it was implemented in the game was just a bit excessive and tedious. Outside of the primary visual novel interface, there's also a stationary first-person shooter interface at various points in the game with that 3x3 grid that you'd be able to shoot the different creatures or the, the snatchers, depending on what the situation would be. I did want, also want to mention that there is a practice range at Junker headquarters that you can use to get a little bit more familiar with the overall shooting system itself. That practice range is pretty darn simple, so it's not really going to challenge your skills so so much, but... It does let you get a little bit of exposure to what that shooting system is life. At the beginning, when this was first introduced, it felt like a nice change of pace. Eventually, though, these sections became less impactful, and they felt like they were here simply to increase the interactivity for the player beyond the pure visual novel interface. 
as I had mentioned, I did play the game with the traditional controller. I'm not sure if this would have been a little bit more fun or these sequences would have been more fun if I had a light gun. Maybe there would have been a little bit more fun to play those particular combat sequences with a light gun. Overall, though, the game controls and general playability remains easy to pick up today, though you do need a little bit of patience to not get a bit put off by some of the cascading menus. There are certain sections of the game where you're literally four or five menus deep to try to get to the the thing that you need to do in order to progress the experience. It's not the worst thing in the world, but modern designs would definitely streamline this setup. So overall, how did it feel to play Snatcher today? For the most part, I greatly enjoyed the experience. The game world, the story, the cinematic flair, it held up even today. There were even some sections where careful observation of the game world leads you to a clue that isn't necessarily obvious, and I love stuff like that. At the same time, this feels like a game that would greatly benefit from a modern remaster, especially from a controls and menu system perspective. It's not that the game as designed is bad, it's just not that streamlined. Regardless, if you put in a little bit of time, you'll likely get sucked into the narrative and it doesn't take too long to get used to the game's eccentricities. So what is our overall verdict? Where does Snatcher sit in the overall context of classic games? Well, many people consider Snatcher to be one of the best adventure games ever created. To that, I say... Uh, No, not really. It's a quality title, but I feel like anyone claiming it as one of the best adventure games just hasn't had enough exposure to the insane quality of many computer-based adventure games that were prevalent in the 80s and 90s. Don't get me wrong, Snatcher is a great game, and I'm glad that I finally played it. But from my perspective, it is not nearly as good as the top adventure game titles from prominent computer game developers like Sierra and LucasArts. From a console perspective, sure, I can get behind that as being one of the the top console-based adventure games, but not the more generally speaking adventure game genre. Though I will say, as Kojima's second title, it absolutely illustrated his natural talent that would eventually evolve into a more refined form of storytelling and intertwining gameplay mechanics. But as it stands, for me, Snatcher doesn't quite reach the Pantheon. Instead, Snatcher is a solid golden oldie. It's something you should play, and if you let yourself get sucked into the world, you'll likely walk away happy that you experienced it. But it is not an unequivocal masterpiece. I do recommend you check it out if you have any interest in seeing how Kojima's cinematic style began, or if you're in the mood for a well-designed cyberpunk world and narrative. But I personally think its cult status is just a tad overblown. That said, it is a praiseworthy achievement and is a title that still holds up well today, which is why for me, Snatcher is a prime example of one of our golden oldies. was our episode on Snatcher. I hope you all enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed creating it. If you'd like to reach out, let me know how I'm doing or if you have feedback about this episode or suggestions about future episodes or just talk about classic gaming or technology in general, 
I would love to hear from you. And there are a couple ways you can reach out. You could either send me an email with the email address classicgamingtoday at gmail.com, or you can send me a note on Twitter. I have the handle at classicgamingt. I am definitely interested in hearing what you all think, and I am looking forward to having the discussion. Before we sign off the week, I do want to mention that our next episode is focused on the classic run-and-gun shooter Contra. So feel free to write in if you have any particularly fond memories about that experience. I'm definitely interested in hearing what you all think. At the same time, I recognize that this podcast is probably available on nearly every podcast engine or service, and you're probably listening to this on one of those. So it would be great if you feel so inclined to leave a review. This is not about bolstering star counts or getting a ton of five-star ratings, though if that happens, that's awesome because that means we're doing something right. No, what this is really about is just trying to make sure that I'm creating the best possible podcast for all of us. I want to make sure that I am taking feedback into account, and if there are things that we should be shifting around or changes that need to be made in order to make this even better, I would love to hear what those are because I am legitimately interested in continuing to grow and build this community, and the only way to make sure we're hitting the mark is by getting that feedback and making sure that we don't have any glaring gaps. We'll be back in around a week with our next episode focused on Contra. Until then, remember... Sometimes the games of the past are just as good, if not better, than the games of today. Goodbye, everyone. <laughs>